Well, we're going to talk a little bit about worship today. The wise men worshipped. Uh, my favorite definition of worship is from the Webster 1828 Dictionary. It says, worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. I love that. Extravagant love and extreme submission. Worship of Christ, worship of your worship of Jesus Christ involves your affections and your will. You give Jesus your love and you surrender to him. Worship is highly valuing Christ or placing a very high value on Jesus Christ. It is considering him to be of great worth to you or considering him to be precious to you, considering him to be a great treasure to you. Uh, Worship is not just singing a a slow, quiet song we call a worship song. It it can be expressed by that, but it, it is essentially an attitude of your heart that manifests itself by outward expressions like songs and other things, and also by the priorities you choose. The priorities, the priority that you place on Jesus Christ shows your worship of him. But it's something that is essentially an attitude of the heart. If your heart worships, then God is pleased with your singing, with your songs, with your giving, with your serving, and everything else that you do that flows out of a heart of worship, God is pleased with. But if your heart is not in worship, then nothing else really matters that you do. In this story, King Herod said he wanted to worship Jesus, but his heart, of course, was in a completely different place. So in this story that David just read for us, we see certain men worship Jesus and others do not. Herod was desperate to kill Jesus. The wise men were on a mission to find him and worship him. People were either overjoyed at the news of his birth or greatly troubled and disturbed about it. You know, A.W. Tozier said that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. That's a, that's a very profound statement of something worth worth giving some thought to. What do you really think about God? But I think we could maybe even more specifically say the most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus Christ. What you think about Jesus Christ will determine whether you find him or you find in him all you ever wanted, whether you are overjoyed in finding him, whether you view him as a precious treasure or if you are just indifferent, unenthusiastic, or even antagonistic toward him. What you think about Jesus will determine what you live for. It will determine what you do in life, what you give yourself to. Either either you will follow him or not, either you will love him or not, either you will worship him or not, either you will see him as worthy of all that you are or not. But if Jesus is God, if Jesus is God, come to us in human flesh. If he is Emmanuel, if he is God with us, 
if he is ruler and king, if he is the perfect manifestation of God's love, if he is our savior from the curse of sin and the brokenness of this world, then the only right response to Jesus Christ is worship. The only appropriate response is to adore him, to thank him and bow down before him, to worship him from the innermost part of your being, to make the the object of the life of your life, the great purpose of your life, the central thing in your heart to love him, adore him and bow before him in humble adoration. You know there's there's a simple chorus that we sometimes sing that goes like this, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Those are very simple words. It's almost, almost like a child's song. And yet there is something about the glory and the majesty and the power and the love of Jesus Christ that calls forth this kind of worship from our hearts. He is worthy. He deserves this kind of love and affection from our hearts. And to those who worship him, to those who see him for who he is, to those who love him, he is wonderful. He is desirous. He is desirable. He is glorious. He is compelling. He is the compelling Christ. Uh, He himself, in his glory and his majesty, intrinsically, because he is God, calls forth worship from our hearts. Amen. (laughs) When the Apostle Paul saw Jesus, even though he was an avowed enemy of Christ, he immediately fell at his feet and he said, Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? He was captivated. He was awed. He was spellbound. And when you see Christ, when you see him with the eyes of your heart, you fall at his feet. Perhaps you literally fall to your knees or, or on your face before him. But certainly you bow the knees of your heart. Well, the wise men in this story saw Jesus as completely worthy of their worship and their gifts. They they saw him as someone to to adore and bow down before. And my prayer this morning would be uh, that each each one of us would move toward this same attitude of worship, that we would move more toward this same attitude of worship. Uh, But before we, we get deeper into this, this, the whole idea of, of worshiping, uh, I just want to deal with some of the, the details of this very well-known story. You, you may think you know this story, and you might not, as well as you think you do. Uh, there's so much mystery about this, this story. Uh, for example, we know the wise men came to present Jesus with their gifts, but we really don't know how many they were. Tradition says there were three because of the three gifts. But it doesn't say there were three. There may have been two. There may have been ten. Some people think there was quite a large contingent of them. Uh, We don't know exactly where they were from, except generally it just says they were from the east, Uh, probably from uh, Babylon or Mesopotamia, somewhere east of Israel, obviously. Tradition 
says they were kings. Uh, there's Christmas carols that refer to them as the three kings from the Orient. But uh, the Bible says that they were uh, magi or more literally wise men. And we don't, we don't know exactly why they were considered wise men. We know that they were men who paid attention to the stars. We might consider them astronomers or astrologers. But they, they were also likely just men who were interested in all things that had to do with wisdom and wisdom-type things and wisdom literature. Uh, we might call them philosophers or thinkers or men who were interested in finding out the answers to the big questions about life. And even though we associate them with Jesus' actual birth date, uh, they did not show up the night that Jesus was born. Uh, They saw his star the night he was born, but they had to prepare for this trip. They had to travel for months. They had to follow this star to the place where Jesus was born. And we know from Herod's calculation that Jesus was no more than two and certainly probably much, much younger than that, but he was probably at least a few months old by the time they arrived. And then there's the mystery about how they got their information about Jesus. They had, they, they had seen his star. They knew it was his star. They knew there was a, a king of the Jews that they had come to see. How did they know that he was coming as king of the Jews? Uh, it's possible that they had learned this from uh, Jews who had been in exile in the east. You know, that when the, uh, for those of you guys that are in men's study, we've, we've been through some of that about the, the Jews being exiled to Babylon and Assyria. We've, we've studied Daniel and people like that. And possibly they learned about the coming of Christ from the Jews that were exiled into these areas in the east. Possibly they learned about the coming of Christ from the prophecies of Daniel, who predicted this coming king and a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And then the thing that we would really like more explanation about is the star. Uh, We don't know exactly what this star was. I mean, some think it was some natural phenomena that God simply used to, to direct the wise men. Some think, think it was an, an alignment of planets uh, that made it appear as a very bright star. Uh, or was it simply a supernatural star, a supernatural light, especially placed by God in the sky just to lead these men from the east? Personally, Uh, I lean toward the supernatural explanation uh, primarily because it says in verse 9 that after they left Herod's palace, the star that they had seen went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Uh, I I don't think regular stars do that. I don't think planets do that. Um, And I don't quite see how a, 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 a regular or normal star or planet could give that kind of specific direction. So I I believe it was a supernatural star or light of God. And perhaps even more amazing is somehow these men knew it was his star. They followed it from from the east, from from their location, hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles away. They they followed this star and they knew it was his star. They told Herod, we saw his star 
The star of Jesus, the star of, of the Messiah. We saw the star of the King of the Jews in the east and we, they followed that star to Jerusalem. So, that's a mystery. How they, how they knew that, that this star was specifically for Jesus Christ. But we know from the story that it was, it was a, a sign. This, this star was a sign that Jesus Christ was born. It, was, it appeared when he was born and then it marked the place of his birth and led these men to it. But with all that we know and don't know, with all the mystery and the unknowns, the main thing we are to know is that they came to worship Jesus. They told Herod, we have come to worship him. That was their purpose. That was their mission. That was their entire reason for leaving home. It was, that wasn't just a part of their journey. Um, it wasn't just a little side trip. The whole reason that they got up and left their home way, way, way far away in the east is they said, we have come to worship him. And later in the story, when they, it says they, they went into the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they fell down and worshipped him. That was the object of their trip. And when they saw Jesus, they had accomplished their mission. That was the goal of their trip, to come and fall down before Jesus and worship him. I believe this story is included by Matthew uh, to, to contrast the, this, this attitude of eager and wholehearted worship from these men from the east with the closed hearts of the Jews and the lack of interests from the high priests and the scribes and the out-and-out hatred of Herod. Verse 3 says, When Herod heard of this coming king, he was disturbed or troubled, as was all of Jerusalem. This was, this was not good news to him. This was bad news to him, and it was apparently not received well throughout the whole city of Jerusalem. Herod was troubled, as was all of Jerusalem. And so, when Herod uh, heard this, he called together all the high priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, because that is what is written by the prophet. This was an Old Testament prophecy written hundreds of years before. O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah because from you will come a ruler. From you will come a ruler. From Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Jesus came to give his life for us, but he also came to rule. And Jesus will rule. He is to be worshipped as ruler and king. But Herod hated the thought of Jesus as a ruler. He was intimidated. He was threatened by that. And although it's not really a part of our story this morning, that's why later on in this chapter he was motivated to slaughter all the babies who were under two years of age. Horrible, horrible thing. But he wanted no one who could threaten his power. He wanted no one who could stand in the way of his own will. There's, a, there's an old rock song that uh, says, uh, I think it was the Doobie Brothers that sang it, Jesus is just all right with me. 
You know, and a lot of people think, think that. They think Jesus is just all right with me so long as he doesn't want to interfere with what I want to do, so long as he doesn't come to rule. When they find out that Jesus wants to be Lord, when they find out that Jesus comes to rule, they don't like that Jesus anymore. And that was the way it was with Herod when, when he, he knew that Jesus was coming as a king. So, Next verse says, Then Herod secretly called together the wise men. He found out from them the time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem. And he told them, As you go, search carefully for the child. When you find him, tell me that I too may go and worship him. One of the most hypocritical statements in the entire scripture. Herod, of course, wanted to kill Jesus, not to worship him. And the easiest way for him to do that the easiest way for him to get this information would simply be for the wise men to come back after they found Jesus and tell him where Jesus was. We know, of course, that they didn't do that. And if, and if they didn't do that, Herod also had a, had a backup plan. He had another strategy. He tried to determine how old Jesus was by asking when the star had first appeared. And that's the reason for asking that question. When did the star first appear? Because he was going to try to determine. He was going to try to calculate when Jesus was born. And then he was going to go kill every male child that would fit within that time range so that he could eliminate Jesus. And he, he followed through on that. He, there was this incredible mass murder of all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region who were two, two years old and younger. And he did that thinking that Jesus would die too in this group. I find it interesting that the Jewish leaders had, had such clear understanding of the prophecies about Jesus. Herod went to them to find out what they had to say about this coming king. And they knew. They understood. They clearly understood about Jesus and the place of Jesus' birth. And they also knew or they were aware that these wise men, this, this contingent of wise men uh, were in Jerusalem. They made, a, they made a big stir when they came into the city. But even with, with all of that, the high priests and the Jewish leaders did not go and seek him. They, just, they seemed content with their... Uh, head knowledge of the prophecies, their head knowledge of the scriptures about the Messiah, but their hearts were not inflamed with a love for him or a joy in finding him or a desire to worship him. And you know, this happens to many people that grow up in church. Uh, They know quite a bit of information about Christ. They might even know prophecies about Christ. But they have never really bowed their hearts and lives before, before him. They've never really come to this place where Jesus is precious to them. He, Christ never really means all that much to them. And their affections are just absorbed by other things, by the, just the affairs, the daily affairs of life or their own plans or getting along in a career or perhaps by sports or acceptance by friends or plans for the future. And there are people who know all the stories and all the facts about Jesus, but simply 
don't adore him, don't love him and worship him. Worship of Jesus Christ is to honor him with extravagant love and extreme submission. So I invite you to come come to Jesus with with this attitude of supreme love and of worship. I invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart this morning to increase your sense of wonder, your sense of adoration, your sense of devotion um, to Jesus Christ. Only one group of people mentioned in this story have an appropriate response to Jesus. Um, and that is, of course, the wise men. The, the Jews, God, God's own people, the Jews, do not worship him. The high priests and the scribes do not worship him. Herod does not worship him. It is foreigners, Greeks, Easterners, Gentiles, people from pagan backgrounds. These are the ones who see his worth and come and bow down before him. And I think very briefly, I think there's a couple important lessons here. First, no matter how pagan or ungodly your background, you too can come and worship Jesus. And no matter who or what you have worshipped in your past, you can become a worshiper of Jesus today. And Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will never turn away. The one who comes to worship Jesus will never be turned away, no matter what your background. And number two, to second a lesson I just see from this quickly from this part of the story, is the, the worshipful hearts of these wise men, uh, they stand out in sharp contrast, certainly to Herod, but also to all the other people in this story. Their, their worshipful hearts uh, shine like like a star against the against a night background. They their their love and devotion, their desire for Jesus, their joy in finding Him, stands out against the blackness of and the indifference of of these other people's response and the antagonism and hatred of Herod's response, of course, too. And today, all around us are are many people. I mean, it's just, it's just a reality of life. I'm not saying this to kind of make us sound better than people or condemn other people. It's just a reality that all around us are many, many people who place very little real value on Jesus Christ. Uh, they're not moved to, to love him or worship him. And so, like the wise men, your love toward Christ, your joy in Christ, your worship of Christ should stand out in stark contrast to all those people around you who do not bow before Christ. And so regardless of what other people do, regardless of the, the lack of worth that other people see in Christ, let your heart, let your heart find Jesus as precious and valuable. Set your heart on Christ as your most precious possession. Uh, let Jesus Christ be the focus of your life the one you love, the one you adore, the one you give your heart to, the one you pay attention to, the one you're devoted to, the one that you want to serve. And 
even if that looks extreme compared to the response of perhaps your family or friends or the world around you, don't let that stop you for being a worshiper of Jesus Christ like these wise men. And from these wise men, I think we see some, some demonstrations of, of just what true worship is. Worship is a profound inner sense of the worth of Jesus Christ. And that's what drew these wise men from the East to Jesus. They, they saw his worthiness. And you know, that's what we're going to be doing throughout all eternity. We're going to be saying, worthy, 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 worthy is the Lamb. We're, we're, we'll, in, in eternity, we'll, we'll finally see it for sure. <laughs> we'll see fully his worthiness. But we, we're to worship him as, as, as being worthy. And the wise men in, in somehow intuitively knew that he was worthy of falling on their feet or falling uh, on their knees before him. Uh, they knew he was worthy of all honor and power and glory and blessing and praise. He was worthy of them following his star. He was worthy of them leaving their homeland and their duties and their routines of life and, and coming and falling at the, at the feet of, of Jesus. He was worthy of their most costly gifts. And, you know, I can't fully explain it, but there is something, uh, something intrinsically about Jesus. I mean, it, it's, his, it's his deity it's his glory, it's his majesty, it's his power and his love. But there's something intrinsically in the person of Jesus Christ that, that beckons us or calls us outside of our own small, narrow, self-focused lives and challenges us to follow him as Lord of all and to worship him as Lord of all. I've always been impressed with how, this is obviously later in his life, but how Jesus could just walk along the, 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 the seashore and and see a man like, like Peter or James or John and just say, follow me. And immediately they'd leave everything and follow him because there's just this, this sense of weightiness about Jesus, this intrinsic value that when he speaks, you listen. When he says, follow, you follow. There is something about his authority and power, his love and compassion that captures our hearts and compels our obedience and our loving devotion. So worship is just this profound inner sense, inner sense of the worth of Jesus Christ. Secondly, worship of Christ changes your priorities in life. Indeed, our worship of, of Christ is shown or it's demonstrated by our priorities. Uh, when the wise men saw the star of Christ, they put all their other plans on hold. They had to, and they followed that star. And if, if you worship Jesus, it will change your plans. It will interrupt your life. Um, you know, when you get married, it just totally changes your life. And then when you have kids, it just changes your life even more than you can possibly believe. And when you come into union with Jesus Christ, it, it has to change your life and your passions and your priorities, and your plans. A genuine encounter with Christ, Christ will lead you to really submit all of your plans to Him, to turn your life over to Him. And, and 
It's a, really following Jesus every day is a matter of waking up and offering yourself to him as, as Lord and ruler and king. Lover of your soul, certainly, but also master. And you follow his promptings and, and leadings. Third, worship is intentional. You, you choose to be a worshiper. I mean, we all make that choice or not. You choose to follow the star, so to speak. Worship of Jesus isn't something that happens by accident, that some people just sort of happen to and and other people don't. Um, You decide to value Christ above all else. Fourth, worshipers find great joy in Christ. Uh, I love the way the the ISV puts this, uh, this one verse. It says, It says, the star led them until it stopped over the place the child was. And when they saw the star, they were ecstatic with joy. I I love that. When they saw the place, um, when when they saw the star, they were ecstatic with joy because it had stopped over the place where Jesus was because they knew they'd been led to Jesus. The, The NIV says overjoyed. But they found... In finding Christ, they found, they found great joy. They had great joy in finding him. And this is so important. This joy in Christ, this joy in Jesus Christ is so important to our worship. Um, in, in, indeed, we, we worship him by finding our joy in him. When we are... When we are happy in Christ, when we are joyful in Him, uh, He considers that worship. And and honestly, no one no one will worship Christ very much for very long who does not find their joy in Him. We we worship those things which give us joy, and so finding finding our joy in someone or something is is really almost the definition of worship. It's nearly the same thing as worship, and so it's so important that you enjoy the Lord. It's so important that you learn to, to enjoy the Lord. Uh, no wonder Paul says over and over and over, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, number five, worshipers are always looking for ways to show their love and honor to Christ. After the wise men went into the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, they fell down and worshiped him then they opened their treasure sacks and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They, they brought their treasure, treasures to him. Worshippers are always looking for ways to show their love and honor to Christ. Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China and... Uh, established an incredible uh, missionary work in China and really is responsible today or his work and labors responsible today for for uh, un- the underground church in China and there being so many Christians in China today but he said this and I know I know I know you ladies in Cindy's study have already heard this but uh, probably a few times but it's so good. It is so good. 
He said, well do I remember how in gladness of heart I poured out my soul before God, again and again confessing my grateful love to him who had done everything for me, who had saved me when I had given up all hope and even desire for salvation. I besought him to give me some work to do for him as an outlet for love and gratitude. You know, worshipers are not saying, oh no, what do I have to do for Jesus now? They're, they're not people who, who, who never want to do anything for others in Jesus' name, who don't, don't want to do anything in, in, the, in, in, in the church family or for God. They are looking. Worshippers are looking for an outlet for their love and gratitude. I besought him. I besought, I besought Jesus Christ to give me some work to do for him as an outlet for my love and gratitude. It's just like, I got so much love for Jesus in my heart. I've got so much gratitude for him. Just give me something that I can do for him. I mean, that was, that was his, his attitude. Oh, oh, that I could find something to do to show Jesus my love. And then what is it about Jesus that compels our worship? Uh, there's so many things, but I just quickly, I want to share a few. We find in him the only one who could save us from our sins. From the sin of Adam onward, mankind has lived in the misery of sin and with the guilt of sin on his conscience. And we were, we were all, every one of us was born into this world, born into this life, fallen and broken people. And that's, that's not just a doctrine. We've all seen and felt the effects of sin in our own lives, in our own families. And there's a cry in our heart for something better. There's a cry in our heart to be clean. There's a cry in our heart to be forgiven, to be made whole. And Jesus is the answer to that longing. The angel told Mary, Mary will give, or told Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he is the one who will save his people from their sins. He is worthy of your worship for taking your sins and your misery and your guilt upon himself. And secondly, and I put this one in because we've been going through Galatians, we find in him the only one who could redeem us from the law. Galatians 4, 4. But when the appropriate time had come, God sent his son, born by a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law and thus to adopt them as his children. That sums up pretty well why Christ came. I mean, he came to get you out from underneath the law and into the life uh, where you glory in Christ and the cross and what he did for you on the cross and what he does in you now through the Spirit. To redeem you from under the law and adopt you as his children. There's a big difference between, between being under the yoke of the law and living as sons and daughters of God. And Jesus came. He was born. Born of a, of a woman, it says to buy your freedom from the law so that you could live in this liberty of spirit. And we are, thank God, we are not led by laws, we're not under the law, but we are led by the Spirit and we live under His influence. And we should love Jesus and worship Him forever for releasing us from that bondage to the law. 
then we find in him as ruler and king. I, I love this statement. Uh, o Bethlehem, from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Jesus Christ is ruler and king. And he, he's, he's our, our hero in an ultimate sense. Um, For unto us a child is born, Isaiah said, to, a, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the growth of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule over his kingdom, sitting on the throne of David from this time onward and forever. You know, we worship Jesus because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. You're not, we're not worshiping just a good teacher. Uh, we're worshiping the one who will rule the nations in righteousness and justice. And there's something in us that longs for things to, to be made right. There's a cry in our heart for the injustice, for the wickedness, for the troubles of this world, this fallen world, this sin-cursed world to be changed. And one of my favorite lines from any of the Christmas hymns is, The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. And that's because Jesus Christ himself will make that happen. So we worship Christ as king, ruler, victor, victorious ones, victorious one. Your fears are not victorious. Your troubles are not victorious. Your enemies are not victorious. Those who could hurt or harm you are not victorious. Jesus Christ is victorious over your life and your eternity. Nothing can ultimately harm us. Nothing can ultimately work against his kind and good purpose in our lives. Nothing can separate us from his love. He is ruler and king, and he will keep us safely through all eternity, and he is worthy of our worship as ruler and king. But perhaps the greatest reason of all to worship Jesus is because of his love for you. Someone wrote, it was love that led him to exchange his throne of glory for the manger of Bethlehem. Jesus Christ came to give himself to you in love. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's the kind of love Jesus has for you. For there is no other person that is worthy of our worship like he is. I, I think it was Charles Wesley that wrote the hymn, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Um, I grew up he hearing a, a hymn or a song played around our house, No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend as kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. You know, there's so much talk in this world about uh, love, and yet who can find a love like that? Who can find uh, a faithful and true friend? Uh, I he heard a quote once that said, Christ is your best friend and at times your only friend. And some of that's always that's always stuck with me. And when you find someone who loves you like Jesus, you want to follow him, you want to love him, you want to worship him. You worship him for his, for his amazing love. I'm going to close with a, 
a song. Um, song that's been a blessing to me. It's called Friends So True. Uh, Kelly Willard uh, sings it. Probably nobody here has heard of her. She's probably really old by now. Uh, she says, but the words of the song go like this. We're going to play it in just a minute. But sometimes I'm so confused I don't know what to do. And it's hard to find a friend that you can take all your troubles to. I get so afraid, afraid to be myself. Tell me, who else can you be? You can't be nobody else. I need a friend so true, I can take all my troubles too. Can you tell me what to do? And then she describes meeting Jesus. I just met a friend who loves me just the way I am. And he seems to understand me because he ain't like no other man. I found a friend so true. I can take all my troubles too. And he knows just what to do. Who could find a friend so true who really loves you in spite of what you do?